Hi, I'm Dr. Hillary McBride. Normally, therapy sessions are totally confidential, but in other people's problems, I open the doors to let you hear sessions with my long-standing clients. This is what people sound like when they talk with someone they trust about healing addiction, parenting stress, racist ideologies in the family, and other topics that feel so timely as we come through this difficult time. Other People's Problems, available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. This is White Coat Black Art. On our show this week, I get a chance to indulge my inner fanboy. I want to introduce you to a fellow MD and writer from the UK named Henry Marsh. Marsh retired in 2015 after a 35-year career as a neurosurgeon, much of it at St. George's Hospital in South London. This shows a very typical tumour, which is almost certainly completely benign, called a meningioma. It's not actually in the brain, but it's pressing on the brain and then indenting the brain without treatment. She'll probably go blind within the next few weeks. It might be months. And then she dies shortly after that. That's Marsh on one of his last days in the OR for a story that ran on BBC Newsnight back in 2015. As he mentioned later in a talk, for much of his career as a neurosurgeon, Marsh kept a detailed diary. But I always knew and felt very strongly that, that what I was doing as, as a neurosurgeon was extraordinarily interesting from all sorts of points of view. And I, I wanted to write about it, not, not to publish it, not for anything like that, just to write about it, to record because always I felt I was seeing all these extraordinary things, again, going through intense inner, inner experiences myself, and I wanted to record it in some way. Marsh turned those diaries into his 2014 memoir and international bestseller, Do No Harm, a brave and often shockingly candid account about the dangers of practicing neurosurgery. One slip of a scalpel could mean the difference between complete recovery and paralysis. Two or three years ago, halfway through the book, I'd say I ought to start trying to remember all my worst mistakes. Doctors like to talk behind closed doors about eminent professors on the point of retirement who actually stand up and talk about some of their worst mistakes. Um, and it was actually very difficult to remember them. Um, and I lay in bed every morning. I had to have a note notebook with me and a pen pencil. And if I didn't write them down immediately, I forgot them again, all over again. It was rather like stirring up methane in a stagnant pond. And the more I thought about it, and I've had a huge practice, it's very busy, I've I don't know how many thousands, tens of thousands of operations I've done, um, and I'm sure I've forgotten some of my worst mistakes. And the problem is this, that these, some of these mistakes were not mistakes, well, it was a difficult case, it was a question of judgment, and, you know, I got it wrong, it's easy to be wise in retrospect. I've made careless mistakes. Talking about mistakes is another thing he and I have in common. This is me talking about my own medical mistakes in a 2012 TED Talk. Another nurse said three words to me that are the three words that most emergency physicians I know dread. Others in medicine dread them as well, but there's something particular about emergency medicine because we see patients so fleetingly. The three words are, do you remember? Do you remember that patient you sent home? The other nurse asked matter-of-factly. Well, she's back in just that tone of voice. Well, she was back all right. She was back in near death. Earlier this year, I was in Exeter in southwest England to speak at a conference. Really looking forward to hearing his insights after 40 years in the NHS. Thank you very much, Thank Mr. Henry Marsh. 
But, uh, it really is a great pleasure to be here. When I found out that Marsh was also speaking at the conference, I knew I had to have him on the show. Just get, get a level on you. What did you have for breakfast this morning? Oh, I didn't. I, I didn't answer that question. Like as the waves make towards the pebbled shore, so do our minutes hasten to their end. Each changing place with that which goes before and sequent toil, all forwards do contend. <laughs> a quote from Shakespeare makes me even more excited about a conversation with Henry Marsh. In his book, Do No Harm, Marsh questioned his empathy for patients. He has a new book, and finally, Matters of Life and Death, published in 2022. The book deals with Marsh being diagnosed with prostate cancer. Now 73, he confronts aging and his own mortality while reflecting on a long and successful career in the high-stakes field of neurosurgery. Henry Marsh, we would call you Dr. Henry Marsh. I know you here you would be Mr. Henry Marsh, but yeah. we're going to say Dr. Henry Marsh, welcome to White Coat Blackheart. Thank you. To get through 15-hour operations, you have to love what you're doing. And, I, and you said, you've said that you love what you're doing. What did you love the most about it? The fact you live intensely in the present is, is in the flow. I have no interest in gambling, but I once was in the casino watching people at the roulette wheel, watching this ball go round of absolute fixation. When you're operating, the outside world completely disappears, and, you're, and particularly down a microscope, you're in this sort of magical illuminated world of somebody's brain. It, it is an extraordinarily intense feeling. And it's dangerous, but that makes it very exciting. And provided you feel more or less in control, it's exciting rather than frightening. But every so often things fall apart and then it's terrifying. Again, I'm not a neurosurgeon, but uh, what I found in reading your book and finally is that you and I have a lot in common uh, between the ears. And in, in that book, uh, you describe running, uh, which I do as well. You describe that time when you were overtaken by a gazelle-like female runner. Now, I run at 5 a.m., so the, the so gazelles are sleeping, gazelle but, but, but I'm quite, I am quite certain that I have been overtaken by the same gazelle. Yeah. Uh, so so you know, when, I, when I get past, I have this urge to scream out my age. How old are you? Well, I scream out, I'm 73, almost 73, and I've been castrated for prostate cancer. <laughs> oh, so you do the same thing. So, so I, I win on that one, yeah. So what is going on inside your head? Oh, I, I now accept it. I've, it took me a while to accept I'm running slower and slower, and I'm now off hormone therapy for prostate cancer, hopefully not just temporarily. And I'm starting to get my muscle strength back again, so I managed to do a an eight-mile run on Monday, which didn't feel too bad. I then made the mistake and did a six-mile run yesterday and felt rather knackered. But I, outside of 18 miles in four days, it was probably too much. But it's, it's, physical fitness is hugely important to me, which is why the, all the, <clears throat> the effects of hormone therapy I find very hard to accept. We'll get to those in just a moment. Um, in the book, you wrote about seeing a scan of your 70-year-old brain. Mm. Describe what you saw. It was pretty atrophic, and there was lots of white matter hyperintensities, which uh, we don't, it's not really know what they signify. They signify brain damage in the white matter, presumably due to blood vessel problems. It's connected to hypertension, and um, there is a, it's related to a risk of stroke, but dementia, it's not clear. And although in retrospect, probably my scan was not that unusual for a 70-year-old, yeah, I was totally horrified by it. I had to actually admit to myself, I am 70 years old, even though at that time, before I was diagnosed with cancer, I felt very fit and active and thought I was still pretty clever, you know. 
So what it was I've lost with those white matter hyperintensities, I don't know. I suppose poorer memory, mental arithmetic, mental arithmetic slowed down, things like that. But it's old age, and we have to accept it. Both my mother and my sister died of advanced dementia. So my interest in your reaction to seeing your brain scan is personal. Have you ever feared being diagnosed with dementia? Oh, enormously, immensely. It dominates my life. My father died from dementia at the age of 96. I feel passionately that we've inherited from our evolution this fear of death, which is causing us enormous problems. Now we all live into old age. But if you say that publicly, you're accused of being ageist. Um, there's no easy solution to the dementia problem. And assisted dying, which I strongly support, doesn't solve the dementia problem because you need mental capacity. Maybe early diagnosis, but very difficult then to decide ruthlessly if you're definitely diagnosed of early Alzheimer's to then go and opt for assisted dying. So the dementia problem is not going away. I think there's some solution to the extent of people, if everybody is not forced, but more people make advanced directives so you don't give antibiotics to elderly demented people when they get chest infections. We need to be more open about this, but it still is going to be a big problem. And when you look at countries like Nigeria and Brazil, they're going to have huge epidemic of dementia in 40 or 50 years' time because of the baby bulge of the last 20 years. So you, as you've said, you were diagnosed with advanced prostate cancer. How did that come about, the diagnosis? <laughs> I'd been literally sitting on fairly severe prostate symptoms for years, partly because almost certainly 25 years ago I had a common male condition called chronic prostatitis. So I kind of got used to it, and it gradually got worse. But a lot of it was sheer denial. I mean, I had to know rationally that the symptoms of benign um, prostatic enlargement, prostatitis, and cancer. You can't really distinguish between them. So basically, I'd buried my head in the sand. Marsh mentioned having a very high PSA level. I'm betting most of you know that a PSA is the blood test doctors use to see if you need testing for prostate cancer. It's also used to monitor patients with prostate cancer to see how they respond to treatment. Eventually, the symptoms became so unpleasant there was a bit of a delay because of the pandemic. I saw a colleague, and I said, I don't want a PSA. And he said, Henry, you can't, you can't keep your head buried in the sand. So I was, I, my PSA was 130, which only fewer than 5% of men have a PSA that high. I'm rather perversely proud of it. My PSA is higher than yours. And, of course, if you look up the literature, it's a death sentence, the PSA that high. At least historically it's been. But then I went, I went through a very painful period for about two or three weeks, waiting to get the results of the bone scans, CT, PET scans, and the like. And in fact, I haven't got metastatic disease, and I haven't got lymph node spread, and it's just locally invasive, technically stage 3B. Very hard to work out what the prognosis is for that, but I think it's, it's better than the 75% dead within five years, which is a sort of basketball figure for a PSA that high. I was on hormone therapy, chemical castration, LHRH agonist for two years, which was the first year I coped with. But by the end of the second year, I really was getting quite... It's hard to put into words. It wasn't exactly depressed, but I'd really lost all interest in being alive. I'd lost this sort of vital spark. And once it stopped, even though my testosterone has not yet returned to normal, 
I just felt wonderful. It's like living backwards. I feel younger every day. I was getting older and older. And now I'm getting younger all the time. So I wouldn't recommend chemical castration to anybody, but it's quite funny at the moment. Of course, you know, the PSA gets repeated every six months and you when's it going to start going up? But at the moment, it's extremely low and I've come off the therapy and I've learned to be a bit of a Buddhist and learn in the present. And again, I'm terribly lucky. I was a doctor. I can look back on my life and think I've had a really meaningful, useful life. I've got many things I regret. I made many mistakes. And although there are many equally important ways of trying to help the world and make the world a better place than being a doctor, it is a fantastic privilege to be a doctor. I think it's wonderful. I can look back in my life and I've got, I, I get on well with my children. I've got delightful grandchildren. And I'm very lucky I can look back at my life without, without too many regrets. That's a big privilege. What was your experience of being given the diagnosis by, by the oncologist? Well, the oncologist didn't really give me much. I'd already done a bit of... I mean, I was, I was very tongue-tied. I was very reluctant to sort of say, I'm an important surgeon and writer, you know. So I was quite shy. Um, and all he really said was, I said, well, you know, what are the chances of my being alive in five years' time? Uh, rather like, you know, how long have I got, Doc? And of course, you know, no doctor knows how long a patient's going to live, not until right, until they're breathing, they're gasping their last. And he said, well, you don't have to make your will for five years. And that's all he said. <laughs> Which, in retrospect, was not a perfect example of communication, but so it goes. And I... So I ended up Googling it all, getting frightened and optimistic. And now I've, I've come, to, come to terms with it. The future is uncertain. All that matters is I feel well at the moment. My family are well, and I'm a lucky man. You wrote about this in the book, and I want, to, I want you to talk about it a bit. What's the mismatch between what the oncologist was telling you, you know, you don't have to make your will for five years, yeah. about your prognosis and what, what you, the patient, needed to hear? I wanted to be given a bit of hope, even though... It's only a statistical hope. And it's something I was well aware of because so many of my patients had glioblastomas. And I would say, well, if you're unusually unlucky, you might be dead within less than a year. And if you're unusually lucky, a few people are alive in five years' time. And in between these two extremes, um, the tumour will probably come back. We We may be able to treat you, we may not. And that was as close to the truth as I could get I mean, AK then goes on to the internet, so they find the figures anyway if they want them. But you want to have a feeling there's some chance of all will be well. You want to feel somebody care. And the really critical thing is the feeling your doctor cares for you. Uh, and that's worth an awful lot, you know. And I'm often asked, how do you handle complications, manage them by neurosurgical trainees? And I say the management of complications starts the minute you meet the patient and the family for the first time. Somehow you have to create their understanding. You really care for them, not to the point of bursting into floods and tears. And There's nothing more frightening for a patient than a frightened doctor. But you have to create that feeling of trust and care. And it's amazing, if, and particularly in neurosurgery where there are so many bad results, you have to prepare the patient and the family and yourself for the possibility of a bad result without depriving them of hope. And obviously that's often very difficult. But you have to try, and hope is, hope is the most precious drug we have at our disposal. It doesn't necessarily cure cancer, but it makes life a lot more bearable. You wrote that patients rarely tell their doctors what they think of them. Have you ever done that with your doctors? No. 
I wouldn't dare. Why not? Because my life depends on them. I don't want to upset them. You know, I'm, I'm gently critical in the book, but then I'm more critical of myself. So, um, but this is one of the big problems of being a doctor, is you never get... I know medical students nowadays get some training in communication, which is a good thing. But once you p- put a white coat on, or not a white coat in this country, um, once you become a doctor, you'll never hear what patients really think or feel, very rarely, unless it's a complaint or litigation months down the line. For many years, I worked in an old 19th century hospital, which was only brain, neurology and neurosurgery, a wonderful old hospital called Atkinson Morley's, where in fact was CT brain scanning, was invented by Sir Godfrey Hansfield. And I saw my patients in the American tradition in my own office, rather than some big impersonal warehouse. And my secretary's office was next door to mine. And my secretary, who had the same secretary throughout my 30 years as a consultant, as a senior doctor, would hear what the patients were saying as they left my office. And this was actually very useful, useful feedback, but very unusual. One of the nice things about being a successful writer is I do literary events. And quite often former patients, and even more interestingly, families of patients who have died, will come up to me. And I know that people who didn't like me won't come to, to hear me talk. But it's very nice years later to be told, well, no, actually, you, you were very nice, you know, even though my husband, my son died or whatever. And you rarely get feedback like that. We only get feedback when the operation goes well. When things go badly, it's just painful glances and maybe litigation. We'll be right back. The climate is changing. So are we. I'm Laura Lynch, and I host What on Earth? That's CBC's Climate Solutions podcast. Twice a week, we take you around the world to find the people who are trying to build a better future for all of us. We explore Indigenous science, new technologies. We talk openly about mental health and climate anxiety. We also take your smart questions all the time. Come find What on Earth wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to White Coat Black Art. This week, a feature interview with famed British neurosurgeon and author, Dr. Henry Marsh. His latest book, and finally, Matters of Life and Death, published in 2022, is about aging and being diagnosed with prostate cancer at the age of 70. He underwent hormone treatment and is currently in remission. But his brush with cancer has made him think about assisted death, a very timely subject in the UK. Live in the Palace of Westminster in the House of Commons. And this morning is our first evidence session into our new inquiry into assisted dying, assisted suicide. It is a subject that obviously is incredibly sensitive and affects us all, which is how we die. Um, Obviously, some people feel incredibly strongly about there being the need for a change in the law. Some people feel incredibly strongly that there shouldn't be a change in the law. And many people are obviously well aware that there is a debate raging on the subject and have not picked a position on this and may never do so. Earlier this year, British MPs began hearings on whether or not to allow doctor-assisted death in the UK, something that Canada has allowed since 2016. Marsh is watching keenly the evolving situation in Canada. You're in favour of assisted death. Yes. What led you to that point of view? Oh, I'm seeing people die badly throughout my career. Not so much in neurosurgery, because on the whole, neurosurgical deaths are in coma or on ventilators. Occasionally they're more drawn out. 
But my, I, I did a year of general surgery and saw some pretty bad deaths. And I knew anecdotally of these things. So I knew perfect was clear to me that despite good palliative care, and of course Britain led the way with the hospice, England led the way with the hospice movement, despite good palliative care, some people have bad deaths. And there's lots of evidence about this, books written. And the opponents of assisted dying in this country who are mainly senior palliative care doctors just will not admit this, you know. They say the problem is just, you know, we need better palliative care. And they worried that if assisted dying was introduced in England, this would mean there'd be less pressure to improve palliative care in this country. Well, it's not a question of evidence, because assisted dying is available in many countries. I know there's been a very difficult debate in Canada about assisted dying for psychiatric illness, which I think is very difficult. Personally, I would legislate against that just because it's so difficult. You know, I think there might be a case for it, but it just causes so many problems. But having said that, the number of cases in the Netherlands or Belgium where people have been granted assisted dying on the basis of a chronic psychiatric diagnosis is, is very small. And how extraordinary to deprive a large number of people dying badly of, of a loss of autonomy and dignity that many of us fear greatly and dislike. Uh, you know, how many people should be forced to go through all that for a very theoretical small number of people who might be coerced by greedy relatives or cruel doctors and nurses? And it's quite clear, as far as I can see, in the countries where assisted dying is available. It isn't happening. You have safeguards. Coercion is not a problem. So it's a long battle. I think it will come in this. It's like gay marriage. It'll come eventually. I hope it comes in time for me, otherwise I'll have to resort to my, my suicide kit or, or go to Zurich, which I didn't particularly want to do. And so you have assembled a suicide yes, kit. I yeah. I worry it won't work, so a friend of mine has promised to give me back up <laughs> if it doesn't work. Both of us obviously hope this won't, won't happen. And what's in the suicide kit? It's opiates, basically. What would it take for you to want to use it? Um, becoming paralysed from probably, from metastatic disease in my spine for my prostate cancer. There's an awful phrase it referred to being sawed off. Sawn off. That's all right. I don't think it's in the States or Canada, but English neurosurgeons talk about someone being sawn off when they're totally paralyzed. And that's because the, the met- metastasis has come as... And now that happens to a significant proportion of men with prostate cancer. Not, not, I, I can't put a figure on it. Um, and if I knew I was going to die anyway... The man I am at the moment, I I just get a bit bored lying there in a hospital or in a hospice, doubly incontinent, unable to move. It would not suit me. I'd say, I want to get this over with. Now, I accept I might not actually feel that if that happens, but I'd like to feel at the moment I have that choice. And another strong argument for assisted dying, which is borne out in the experience of Oregon, which has it on a six-month terminal diagnosis criterion, which I think is wrong, but never mind, when people go into terminal care, they're often frightened about what the end might be like. And to be told, well, if it really is unpleasant, you have the option of a speedy end is, is reassuring. And in England, by law, we can refuse further treatment. We're entitled to say, I'd rather die than have this latest course of antibiotics or chemotherapy or something. But we're not allowed to say when or where or how, which seems to me totally inconsistent. And that colleague who you have not named yes. who would assist you yes. would be in the UK guilty of murder? Yes. 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 
the, and the Suicide Act of 19-something or other makes no distinction between encouraging suicide and assisting it. And clearly there's a huge difference. And the law has no problem recognising coercive behaviour in family law. So, you know, you can have coercive behaviour as part of one of your safeguards in assisted dying. Like Canada, the UK's publicly funded healthcare system, the National Health Service, or NHS, is under stress. So what's your, your quick take on well, what, what ails the NHS? There's no simple... It's multifactorial. There's no simple answer. But the most recent analysis I read from an independent organisation called the Health Foundation is that you know, this country has spent significantly less on healthcare in recent years than the countries in Europe we would like to consider to be our equals. So there is a, there is a financial, there's a real financial problem. Underlying that, of course, is a problem affecting all healthcare systems throughout the world, which is more and more old people and more and more expensive medical technology. I mean, I saw a, um, it was just pub, pub, published in, this week in Britain, some child with I can't, some leuke, leukodystrophy has received gene therapy, which costs 1.8 million pounds for the one child. Actually, by a quality analysis, it's good value for money because you've probably cured the child. But you have to, I mean, that's one good aspect of the NHS is is NICE, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, which I worked for for five years, which tries to use quality analysis for all its faults to choose between different, um, different treatments. So we need a lot of ruthless analysis. But health, the fact of the matter is, all over the world, Healthcare costs are rising more rapidly than national income is rising. So a larger and larger proportion of national income goes on healthcare. A lot of that is keeping old people alive, and it means money for education, childcare, better parenting. The future is being starved as a result. These are very, very serious, very difficult problems. The title of your book is And Finally. That seems like a statement. Yes, it's and finally, because when I started halfway through the book, I wasn't sure whether I was going to be dead within a few months or not. But also, I've said everything I want to say about my life and medicine. I'm not going to write another book. I'm planning on writing a children's book, but that's another story. About what? What about the, the imaginary world in one chapter about dragons and engineering fairies, things like that? Whether I'll write it for my grandchildren, whether it gets published or not, is a totally separate question. I will look forward to reading it. Dr. Henry Marsh, thank you so much for speaking with me. My pleasure. My pleasure. For close to 30 years, Marsh was a visiting surgeon in Ukraine, doing countless operations and training more than one generation of neurosurgeons. In October 2022, he returned to Ukraine to train medical students and palliative care doctors. And he set up Hospice Ukraine to help doctors and nurses there to care for Ukrainians at the end of life. That's our show this week. If you'd like to comment, our email address is whitecoat at cbc.ca. White Coat Black Art was produced this week by our senior producer, Colleen Ross, and me, with help from Amina Zoffer, Stephanie Dubois, and Isabel Gallant. Our digital producer is Ruby Buiza. That's medicine from my side of the gurney. I'm Brian Goldman. See you next week.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.